Good evening. Good evening. That's much better. Well, here we are on a Wednesday evening in God's Word. It's been a couple weeks since we were in the book of Job. And we are going to come to the end of this book rather soon, probably within the next, I guess, three weeks. Uh, but where we're picking up our study this evening from two or two weeks ago, right? Two or three weeks ago? Uh, we are picking it up during or in the middle of the speeches of Elihu, which means if you weren't here, you haven't met this person yet. So let me give a little bit of a recap of where we were. He has four speeches. We've looked at two of them already, and we'll look at the final two today, this evening. Uh, But Elihu is a younger man who became very angry after listening to Job and his friends and their debate, and he, he felt the need to come to God's defense. And that's always dangerous when someone feels the need to come to God's defense. I think of Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane who felt the need to come to God's defense, right? And when he did, what happened? Malchus, the high priest servant, had his ear sliced. So that's generally what happens when we assume we need to defend God. You do not need to defend God. We'll see in next week's study that God is perfectly capable of speaking on his own behalf. But He felt that as a younger man, it was inappropriate for him to speak until the elders had been silenced, and they had. And so he justified his right to intervene in the debate and acknowledge that Job's friends had failed to prove Job wrong. Now, he doesn't agree with everything that Bildad and his friends Eliphaz and Zophar said, but some of what he says comes to the same conclusion. But his approach is more about defending God and and coming after Job because Job had the audacity to complain and speak up and cry out to God, not only in prayer, but, but in the fact that he would share with his friends how he was feeling and how he felt that God had uh, maybe not abandoned him, but certainly had not come to his defense. And he couldn't come up with a good reason. And, And by the way, I can't either. Uh, as to why God had allowed him to suffer. But, of course, these men had everything figured out. Elihu is not 100% wrong, but he's not 100% correct either. So he's anxious to enter the debate. He enters the debate, and he, he begins by correcting Job in chapter 33. And then, in chapter 34, in his second speech, he defends God from the complaints of Job. So he defends God. That's his approach. And as we get to the third speech, which takes place in chapter 35, and you can turn there with me, chapter 35, Elihu begins to question Job's wisdom. For Job presented himself as a man of wisdom, and indeed he was. But he's having a hard time accepting the wisdom of Job because he's so put off and so taken back that he would speak about God and his will in a way where he took issue with it. Have you ever taken issue with something that God is doing or has done in your life? Have you ever cried out, God, why? I mean, that's essentially what Job has done. But Elihu feels that that is completely inappropriate. And so we'll see in our studies, we get started here in chapter 35, verse 1, that Elihu questions the wisdom of Job. I know we prayed during worship. I don't think we've prayed before the word. So let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together, and we ask that you would just give us insight and understanding. Help us to receive from these chapters, and help us to see how things really are, and understand and trust you 
in the difficulties that we encounter in life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start by looking at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 35. Then Elihu said, and again, this is his third speech, Do you think this is, uh, this is just? <clears throat> you say, I will be cleared by God. That is, Job was saying, God's going to vindicate me. You say, I will be cleared by God, yet you ask him, What profit is it to me, and what do I gain by not sinning? So he's coming at him and saying, look, you know, you, you said you're going to be cleared, and yet you ask him, what profit is it to me, and what do I gain by not sinning? He had said at one point in his arguments, in his complaints, that sinning wouldn't have changed his circumstances because he had lived righteously and still his circumstances were horrific. So he was just making some points, and they're using his, his words against him, which has happened for 35 chapters up to this point. And so, essentially, he's questioning Job's understanding of God and his ways. You don't really understand God. You don't know God. Has anyone ever said to you, oh, you don't know anything about God? And maybe when I became a Christian, I, I remember this, first became a Christian, I started studying the Word of God, and clearly I hadn't read all 66 books. <laughs> I, I think I got stuck in, like, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. And it was a good place to start, and I just started studying that. So every verse I quoted was from one of those books, and one of the Christian guys that I knew said, man, you're always quoting from those books. I'm like, yeah, but those are the only books I've read. And I remember I was so excited about God's word that I started a Bible study at my job during lunch hour. And I invited my whole department to come. And uh, everyone came. Only one person came back the second week. And I don't think it was because the Bible study was so bad. I think it was because they really weren't interested in studying the word. But one person, one young lady who, who actually attended church, her big complaint was, you know, you're too new, uh, a Christian, uh, you don't know the whole word of God from Genesis to Revelation, uh, you really shouldn't teach the word of God until you know the whole Bible. That was her argument. Now, the problem with that is that uh, it, it's taken me years, <laughs> it took me years to get through and really understand the majority of the Bible. I still don't understand it all. So what was I supposed to do? Wait to share a simple scripture? See, my Bible study was very simple. It was Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ, uh, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. That was my, my, my study. So I didn't need to know more than that verse to teach a Bible study, and I did. But I think the issue was really that I was a young Christian, a new believer, and how dare I start a Bible study? Well, it, it worked out in the end. You guys are here, right? So here we are. But but it's interesting because sometimes people take issue with the wisdom that God has given us. They, they look at the lack of experience or knowledge. And I became a Christian at a pretty young age. I was 21. And uh, I was ordained at 26. I was a worship pastor. And I was involved in ministry very, very young. And so a lot of times I had to combat that issue of, well, you know, he's young. He really doesn't know what he's talking about, you know. And uh, it was tough in the beginning. Then I got old, so now it doesn't bother me anymore. At 58, I'm not worried about those things. But at 28, it used to bother me that I was so young, and I looked even younger. And as a result, people didn't take me or God's word in me seriously. So when someone questions God's wisdom in your life, how does it make you feel? It certainly doesn't comfort you. It makes you feel as if they are not validating you and your experience with God. That's why even if the brand-new Christian comes to me and says, 
Oh, pastor, the, 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 the Lord showed me something in his word. I take it seriously. Because life is a series of revelations that God gives you from his word. And in the beginning, maybe it's as simple as what sin is or who Christ is or what he's done for us. And may we never forget those fundamental truths. Amen. And then we get on to theological matters and we start to think that the simple or fundamental things are base and don't really need to be uh, heated. But the truth is they are the most important things. Fundamentals in any discipline are always the most important things to focus on. So here's what we see. Job is being questioned, his understanding of God and his ways, questioned mostly because he's suffering. I mean, if, if you knew what you were talking about, why are you suffering? That's the gist of it. And then the other thing, Job had kind of said, you know, what, what does it profit God or what does it profit me if I sin or don't sin? Because my life wouldn't have been any different anyway. It goes on in verse 4, Elihu says, I would like to reply to you and to your friends with you. Look up at the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does that affect him? If your sins are many, what does that do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects only a man like yourself and your righteousness only the sons of men. So he's essentially saying nothing you do really impacts God. Or affects God. And there's some truth to that. I mean, our sin and our righteousness doesn't change God. But I think essentially what he's, what he's really coming at him with is, you seem to think that mankind has some effect on God. And he would differ with that. He feels that God is unaffected by our sins. He feels that God is unimpressed by our righteousness and our righteous acts. And yet, in the New Testament, the scripture reveals one very important truth. That God is unchanged by our actions is true, but remember that he did become man and die for our sins. So he doesn't have, Elihu does not have a New Testament. All right, so he doesn't understand how sin ultimately affected God such that he sent his son to die, that as God, Jesus died on the cross. So it's wrong to say that God is unaffected by our sins. First of all, it moved him and motivated him to come as a man and live the perfect life and die on the cross and be raised on the third day. But also, sin was placed upon him. So it would be wrong to say that sin doesn't affect God. It, it has, as we know. So in this regard, I think Elihu is being a little too dogmatic. And then he questions Job's understanding of mankind's access to God. And all of this is an understanding apart from the Son of God, an understanding apart from Christ, which you can understand given when this was written and when this took place. Look at verses 9 through 16. Elihu says, Men cry out under a load of oppression. They plead for relief from the arm of the powerful, but no one says, Where is God my maker? And of course, Job had. Who gives songs in the night? Who teaches more to us than to the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the air? He does not answer when men cry out because of the arrogance of the wicked. Indeed, God does not listen to their empty plea. The Almighty pays no attention to it. How much less then will he listen when you say that you do not see him, that your case is before him, and you must wait for him, and further, that his anger never punishes, and he does not take the least notice of wickedness. So Job opens his mouth with empty talk. Without knowledge, he multiplies words. You realize what Elihu just said to Job? You're full of hot air. Nothing you said is, is correct. You're wrong in all of your suppositions, 
All of your theories, all of your meditations are nothing but not, stuff not even worth listening to. Uh, this guy is young, he's zealous, he's passionate, and he's certainly not compassionate at all. So he questions Job's understanding of what kind of access man has to God. Job talked about a very intimate access in the presence of God. He experienced an intimacy with God before he started to suffer. Now, granted, we can't come into the presence of the Lord apart from Jesus Christ, but Job had a very close and intimate spiritual relationship with God, and now they've called that into question because of his suffering. This man, Elihu, feels that God will not answer insincere prayers that are prayed in arrogance. And you know something? There may be some truth to that, but I can tell you that God answers all prayer. God hears every prayer. You know, when you first come to Christ, you may be proud, you may be arrogant, you may have sin in your life, wickedness in your heart. You may even be involved in wickedness at that very moment. But I know that God responds to prayer when you're in wickedness, because otherwise, would any of us have been saved? Would any of us have even be here this evening? See, I don't think God answers prayer based on your righteousness. I believe he answers prayer, period. He just answers prayer. He loves it when we come to him, asking you shall receive, seeking you'll find, knocking the door will be open to you. He doesn't tell us not to come. He tells us to open our hearts to him. So I believe that even in sincere prayers, if they're at least prayers, even if they're prayed in sin or in arrogance, God hears them. He responds to them. This man, Elihu, accuses Job of arrogantly questioning God's wisdom without any true understanding, and that's just not true. And by the way, God is attentive to our sincere cries, and here's our humble pleas for help. Amen? We know this. It's true. We know it's true. In fact, I want to read a scripture, one of my favorites from the Psalms. It's one of those verses I really love to refer to. In chapter 34 and verse 15, it says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now notice this. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. So if you're in trouble, that is definitely the time to pray. The Lord is, notice, close to whom? To the brokenhearted. And saves those who are crushed in spirit. So I would say it's true that if you're in a place of arrogance, you're probably not going to sincerely pray. But I also think that God will respond to anyone that truly cries out to him, even if they're in the midst of wickedness and sin. I mean, that's repentance. That's, that's confession of sin. So I think Elihu is just a little too idealistic, uh, very dogmatic. Uh, he doesn't believe that uh, anyone should question anything that God does at all, which I understand, but he also feels that Job is wrong in his understanding of God. Maybe he felt that his relationship was too familiar with God. You know, who knows? He, he, just, he, he has an issue with Job. So that's his third speech. It really addresses the advantages of being righteous, and essentially saying, if you're righteous, God hears you, but since you're not righteous, don't think for a minute, Job, God is hearing you. So there's some judgment there. There's definitely uh, a heart that is closed to the difficulties that Job had endured. 
But he gets to his fourth and final speech, and here he addresses God's greatness and Job's ignorance. So you see, the real issue with Elihu is he had an issue with Job. His friends had an issue, but it was more about the sin that they felt Job was involved in. This guy has an issue with Job himself. He's defending God's wisdom and his ways with man. So look at verses 1 through 4. Yeah, I don't know if I did. I get through all of that? I think I did, right? I might have stopped. <laughs> oh, that's what I'm in Psalms. Verse, 30, uh, verse 1 of chapter 36. Elihu continued, bear with me a little longer and I will show you that there is more to be said in God's behalf. So he's speaking on God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe justice to my maker. Be assured that my words are not false. One perfect in knowledge is with you. Now, is he talking about God or is he talking about his understanding of God? It's interesting because the things he's accusing Job of seem to be true of him. There seems to be a degree of arrogance here especially when we have an understanding of what was happening behind the scenes in heaven. But I'll leave that for now. He rather arrogantly appoints himself as God's defense attorney. As I said, Peter tried to defend Jesus in the garden, and it didn't turn out well. It is not your job, it's not my job, it's not our jobs to defend God. God doesn't need you to come to his rescue. And many times when we do, we sound like Elihu, arrogant, proud, discompassionate. We don't have any real feelings of humanity. We, we tend to be, uh, as the world might call us, holier than thou. Have you ever heard that? Oh, don't come at me all holier than thou. I've heard that. You know, when I used to share my faith, that's when people was, oh, you're all like holier than thou. I'm like, I'm not saying I'm holy. I'm trying to tell you about Jesus. And, oh, you're all holier than thou. You know, but that's what we tend to sound like when we defend God and his ways. So he arrogantly appoints himself as God's offense, defense attorney. Then he goes on, verses 5 through 12, he says, God is mighty, but does not despise men. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and, 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 and exalts them forever. But if men are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly, and he makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. This is directed at Job. It is directed at Job. He believes that God uses affliction to correct men and bring them to repentance. And I agree. He does. Sometimes. Sometimes. There's other times that God will not bring correction and allow you to experience or receive whatever it is you think you want. And that in and of itself is a type of correction. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen is you get what you want that God doesn't want for you. And there's lessons in that. But yes, God will use affliction. One of the purposes of suffering is to correct men and women and bring them to repentance. But here's the problem. We know that Job had nothing he really needed to repent of, and we know that he hadn't sinned in a way that caused his suffering. He believes, this is Elihu, that the righteous never suffer. That sounds like Job's three friends. He believes that those that suffer 
are being chastised for sin, but they're not being judged, that God is not judging them. He's chastising or correcting them, and that's sometimes true, that they might repent. He believes they still have a choice to repent and be saved. Good counsel, wrong application. Good counsel, wrong application. Have you ever tried to fix something? Uh, I remember a number of years ago I was using glue. What I didn't realize is not every glue works on every surface, right? So I tried to use a glue on the surface, which was plastic, and it didn't work at all. Like you use wood glue for wood, you have to use a certain glue for plastic. And you can sometimes have a perfectly good tool or glue or substance, but the wrong application, and it just doesn't work. That's the problem with Elihu. He's got good words, good thoughts, good meditations, maybe coming from an arrogance, but still what he's saying isn't wrong. It's just wrong in this case. This will encourage you, as you give counsel, not to do the one-size-fits-all application. I've shared this before. You know, you're ordering a shirt, maybe online, it says, one-size-fits-all. And I think to myself, that, that nothing good can come of that, because as I look around, some of us here are definitely not the same size as others. There is not a one-size-fits-all to counsel from God's Word. However, if someone asks you, is stealing a sin? That's pretty easy to answer. But most of the time, the questions are a little different. I got a call this week. Uh, someone was looking for some counsel, and, and there wasn't a right answer. Essentially, I don't give advice. I give God's counsel. So I gave some counsel, and I said, well, I think you need to discern what God is asking you to do in this situation. And if you're not comfortable in your spirit doing X, then don't do X. Do Y. Especially when it's not a sin issue, you can, you can kind of give that counsel. But I, it, you know, I can't tell someone how to live their life. I have developed in my heart over time a live-and-let-live approach to life. Not in regards to sin. If you've ever heard me preach a sermon, you know that's not, that's not the case. When it comes to sin and what God's word clearly says, sorry, it's, uh, there's truth. But as it relates to how to apply that to your life, or whether or not a person's in sin or not, and I can't tell, I take a live and let live approach. Listen, you need to have a relationship with God and discern what God is calling you to do. I am not in the business of giving advice. If you're old enough to remember Dear Abby... She was a newspaper columnist, and people would write in and ask all kinds of questions, and dear Abby would give advice. Now imagine this. You get a letter. You don't know anything else except what the letter says, and she would come up with an answer. And I often thought, I mean, my goodness, I I wouldn't want to be responsible for giving that kind of trite or glib advice to someone without even knowing the situation. Another thing you want to avoid is hypotheticals. When people come to you and say, Pastor, if a person, I stop them right there. Is this a real person? Well, no, but what are we talking about? You want me to to declare some type of counsel? A person doesn't even exist. If a person comes to Christ and then they do this, and are they still saved? I don't even know the person. Well, the person doesn't exist. Why would I even bother answering that question? So I think we need to, as Christians, address the facts, the truths of God's word, and avoid trying to control people's lives and tell them how to live or applying scriptures that we have no right to apply. Amen? Nobody wants to be told how to live their lives. So live and let live has been my approach as it relates to discerning God's will, not as it relates to God's word, God's ways, and God's will. That's different. Does that make sense? 
this guy definitely uh, did not take that advice. Uh, he doesn't think that way. And so he has been very clear in communicating with Job that he disagrees with him. So he believes that men are ultimately uh, judged on how they respond to their chastisement. That's what he believes. Let me see where I left off here. We're in chapter 36. He says in verse 13, The godless in heart harbor resentment. And even when he fetters them, that is God, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth among, now this is interesting, among male prostitutes in the shrines. Wow. That tells you that this whole LGBT thing is nothing new. This sin has been going on from the beginning of time. We get all wigged out and we look at that and we think, oh my goodness, what's the world coming to? The world has always been a rotten place with lots of sinful lifestyles. And still God's grace is poured out upon the world that whosoever should cry out to him and ask to be forgiven can be forgiven and receive eternal life. Amen? So he says here in uh, Job... He says, they die in their youth, that is the godless, die in their youth among the male prostitutes of the shrines. So that would be idolatry and sexual sin, and specifically homosexuality. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering, and he speaks to them in their affliction. So he's essentially saying, Job, you're missing the point. God has made you suffer so that you can come closer to him. Now, you know something? There's truth in that. There's truth in as we suffer, we have an opportunity to draw closer to God. There is truth in that. In fact, I've said this before. Don't waste your trials. If you're going through a trial, use that trial as an opportunity to grow closer to God. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. So like I said, not everything he says is, is, is wrong. Maybe the, not the right or correct application. But he believes that men are judged ultimately on how they're going to respond to the chastisement. So you're being chastised. You're going through suffering. If you respond by repenting and asking God to forgive you, then he restores you. If you don't, then he destroys you. One little problem. That's not true in the case of Job. He does see a redemptive process in and through Job's suffering and affliction. And I agree, there is always a redemptive process in suffering and affliction. It's the cause of it that I think is at question here in this book. Uh, But let's look at verses 16 through 21. Notice this. This is interesting. He says, Elihu says, He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction, to the comfort of your table, laden with choice food, but now you are laden with the judgment due the wicked. Judgment and justice have taken hold of you. Be careful that no one entices you by riches. Do not set a large bribe. Uh, do not let a large bribe turn your turn you aside. Uh, would your wealth or even all your mighty efforts sustain you, so you would not be in distress? Do not long for the night to drag people away from their homes. Beware of turning to evil, which you seem to prefer to affliction. So he's already made up his mind. Elihu feels that. If nothing else, Job is guilty of being arrogant and unrepentant before God. If nothing else. He encourages Job that God is using this chastisement, this suffering, this this insane amount of suffering he's gone through as chastisement, and it's all for his good. Now, here's the problem. We don't know why God 
allow Job to suffer. We don't know what the ultimate purpose was. But there was a purpose, and this may be somewhat true. But he warns Job to repent by submitting to God's chastisement. Now listen, if you know that you have been living in a way that's contrary to God's will, and you are suffering for it, this advice is really good advice. And I think that probably describes most of us. Most of us aren't as righteous as Job. And that was the problem, is that he was so righteous that, you know, he knew in his heart that he he didn't do anything to deserve this, but his friends second-guessed him. And as a result, we get all this good advice, bad application, right? Then he praises God for chastising Job. So for chastening Job for his own good, he actually praises God. He thinks it's a good thing that happened to Job. Imagine you're suffering and someone comes to you and says, you know, this is good for you. This suffering will do you good. Well, look at verse 22. God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him or said to him, you have done wrong. Remember to extol his work, which men have praised in song. All mankind has seen it. Men gaze on it from afar. How great is God beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. So he's praising God for what he's done to Job, because he believes that ultimately it will end in good for Job. All right? A little insensitive, but that's what he's doing. And then something changes. And now we reach the end of the book. Something happens while they're having this conversation. The other day I was outside, I guess it was yesterday, and uh, I was working out outside, and all of a sudden it like became overcast, that little smell of smoke, and... Uh, What's going on? Is a storm coming? I thought a storm was coming. Then I found out what was going on with these forest fires. But when a storm is gathering, the the skies change, and there's an anticipation of things happening. You might see lightning and thunder. As Elihu is pontificating and sharing his views with Job and his three friends, behind him a storm is gathering, and we're going to find out next week that in that storm God bursts forth and speaks but he doesn't know that right now. And so as he's having this conversation, there's a storm gathering, and we hear about this, uh, and, and actually what Elihu does is he points to the coming storm as a testimony to God's power and wisdom. If you've ever been out in a hurricane, you, you can be easily impressed by God's power because the hurricane just, it's intimidating, right? But whatever's going to happen here, it's happening slowly, it's starting to happen, and Elihu's in the middle of his speech. So... Here's what we read in verse 27. He draws up the drops of water, which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture, and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? See how he scatters his lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea? This is the way he governs the nations and provides food in abundance. He fills his hands with lightning and commands it to strike its mark. His thunder announces the coming storm. Even the cattle make known its approach. So they seek shelter. So here they are outside, and the storm begins to come in. And here he he begins now to describe the rain and the thunder and the lightning and even the benefits of precipitation and describes the awe of the coming storm. Little does he know that in the next two chapters, you're going to see that in that storm, God bursts forth and speaks on behalf of Job. Then he goes on to point to this intense storm to dramatically make his point clear in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 37. 
At this my heart pounds, Elohu says, and leaps from its place. Listen, listen to the roar of his voice to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heavens and sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snowfall on the earth and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour so that all men... He has made may know his work. He stops every man from his labor. The animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber. The cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture and he scatters his lightning through them. And at his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. So this rather dramatic statement, it's all true, but at this point he's been interrupted and he can't help but point to this coming storm to make his point. And he does, he's speaking to them uh, in the terror of the storm as the storm is coming and, and, and God speaks to us in the terrors of storms, Elihu would say. He also speaks to man through the weather. We know this. By the way, uh, I have often wondered, and, and this, I'm not a prophet, I don't pretend to be one or play one on TV. I can only tell you that sometimes I wonder when a nation experiences a weather-related tragedy, I wonder, did God's hand bring it or allow it? I don't know, I, I can't say. I wouldn't be like Elihu to profess that I know. But uh, I remember a number of years ago when Indonesia experienced that tsunami. And uh, I thought it was just awful, awful, awful. Then I started to find out that that area of, I guess it was Sumatra, that area was the center of human trafficking and child sex slavery. And I thought to myself, I wonder, I don't know, I don't know. Certainly a lot of innocent people, if you'll call them innocent, uh, died in that. But, but I wonder, earthquakes, when earthquakes take place in certain countries, I wonder, is that God? Or is it just an earthquake? Or is God working through the earthquake to get people's attention? I don't know. I even think about this whole thing we're going through this week with these forest fires and the poor air quality. You know, one of the things you'll appreciate is air (laughs) this week and that God gives us clean air to breathe, right? I think about people who live in uh, nations like India where the air quality is this poor every day. I think about that and it causes me to be thankful. And uh, we know the things that have been going on in Canada you know, how they've been turning their back on God and passing laws that uh, defy God's word. I, 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 that's where the forest fires are taking place. Do I know? No, I don't know. But God can use things like that, weather-related things, cataclysms, to get people's attention. We saw this with even 9-11, which wasn't, you know, weather-related. It was terrorism. But God allowed that hedge to come down. And we experienced a tragedy, and it caused a lot of people to turn to God. When we went through the COVID years, I'm calling them now, the COVID years, which thankfully someone finally realized they're over, but the COVID years where we were really caused, it really caused us to think through our relationship with God and our relationships with others. And, you know, did God work through that? Clearly. Is God the author of that? Or I think it's more likely that some lab in China is. But you know what? Regardless, God works through these things. He allows us to experience things and he works through them. So here's Elihu making this great speech, and then the storm becomes sort of his backdrop. 
And he uses that to make his point. See, God even works through the storm. And clearly he was, and he was about to emerge on the scene. Then he's, the next thing he does is he points to two things, God's infinite wisdom to humble Job and God's infinite power to humble Job. Let's look at his reference to God's infinite wisdom in verses 14 through 18. Listen to this, Job, Elihu says. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds? I don't, even, I don't know that. I mean, maybe I read in a science book once upon a time how it works, but I still don't really understand it. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightnings, lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised? Those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? You who swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind, can you join him in spreading out the skies hard as a mirror of cast bronze? So Elihu is calling Job's wisdom into question by pointing out God's infinite wisdom. And by the way, this sort of is a prelude to Job being spoken to by God in the next chapter. He goes on to say, tell us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness, that is, our inability to understand. Should he be told that I want to speak, which Job had said, would any man ask to be swallowed up? Now no one can look at the sun bright as it is in the skies after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness he does not oppress. Therefore men revere him, for, he do, for does he not have regard for all the wise in heart. It's interesting. He's, he's almost introducing what happens in the next chapter, uh, which opens up with, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. But I wonder if Elihu was more surprised than anyone that God began to speak from the storm after Elihu had gone to great lengths to defend God. But we'll see that next week. So pointing to God's infinite wisdom and to God's infinite power, we realize that in chapter 37, the the point of what he is really trying to say is that Job doesn't have a clue. And the truth is, neither do I. I know that's sort of anticlimactic to come to the end of all these speeches and realize that no one really knows what God is doing. We sang in a song before, you know, I don't know what he's doing, but I know what he's done. Like, I don't know what God is doing. I don't understand what God is doing. But I know what he's done, and what he's done is die on the cross for our sins sent his son to die in our place, rose again on the third day, and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. So I know that God has done amazing things, great things, wonderful things. So based on what I know, based on what we know about what God has done, can you trust God with what he's doing when you don't understand and what he will do in the future? I assure you, you can. Jesus is faithful in all things. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your scripture. And while Job probably opens more questions than it answers, it does put us in a place of reverence before you. We understand that you will speak when you choose to speak. And next week, we'll listen to the words that you spoke to Job and his friends. But for now, may we trust you with our lives 
May we give our lives to you and trust you in all things, all the things that are going on around us in the world and the wickedness and corruption of this world. You will, as we've seen in our studies on Sundays, uh, you will basically snap your finger and everything will be fixed. And if you haven't done it yet, it's because you haven't chosen to. So may we trust you in all things, but may we trust you especially with our hearts, our lives. May we give them anew and afresh to you this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.